The loveliness of Paris seems somehow sadly gay. The glory that was Rome is of another day. I've been terribly alone and forgotten in Manhattan. I'm going home to my city by the bay. I left my heart in San Francisco. High on a hill, it calls to me to be where little cable cars climb halfway to the stars. The morning fog may chill the air. I don't care. My love waits there. That's certainly one, and perhaps the popular view of San Francisco. Recently, though, the co-founder of a startup credit card processing company, who was forced to move to San Francisco by his financiers, took to the platform Medium with a very different view. He said, and I'm quoting. San Francisco, it's the worst. The weather, the people, the cyclists, the dreary architecture and glum landscape. Why would any sane person want to live in this homeless wasteland? Without the skillions available from venture funding dollars and generous tax breaks, it's obvious San Francisco would drift off into an ocean of irrelevance. He then went on to talk about 10 things he hated about San Francisco. My guest, Gary Camilla, has a very different view. Gary Camilla grew up in Berkeley. He got his B.A. and M.A. at the University of California, Berkeley. He was one of the founders of Salon.com, and he's the author of a new volume entitled Cool Gray City of Love, 49 Views of San Francisco. Gary Cabilla, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Certainly it is a city that uh, draws usually praise, but when people turn against it, it's usually equally vitriolic, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that overall the, the praise uh, vastly outweighs the derision, especially if you look at it from a worldwide perspective. This continues to be one of the most beloved cities in the world. But certainly the uh, extreme expanse of the city and some of the uh, the cultural ramifications that have come with the new influx of money have led to, a, let's say, a large amount of disquietment. And there's been a there's always been critics of the city from, uh, from the beginning. It's really interesting when you look at the current wave of, of influx of people that are coming into the city. It is, to a large portion, young people. And when we look at the 60s, another period that was certainly very profound for San Francisco, it was, again, young people. And yet, when we look at the city, and you look at some of the things that you write about in, in Cool Gray City of Love, it's not a city that is inherently thought of as a young place. Talk a little bit about that, that contradiction. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly has a, you know, a deep history, and obviously, you know, that, that gives it a sense of uh, the gold rush and the earthquake. There's these kind of legendary events that, that we associate with, with historical things, but I actually think it is in many ways seen as a, as a very young city. It's always been a maverick city. It's, uh, it grew up three of the strictures of the uh, East Coast. The, the um, mostly men who founded in the gold rush were overwhelmingly young, so there's been a, a, a youthful, both a literal youthfulness to the city and a youthfulness in its irreverence and its uh, willingness to, uh, to try different things, its greed, its entrepreneurialness. All of these are things that we tend to associate more with youth. So in some ways it's appropriate that both the hippies uh, and, the, uh, and the beats, for that matter, or before the hippies and the uh, dot-com revolution and now the new tech revolution have all been driven by largely young people. So I, I think in many ways it is a young city. Talk a little bit about the sense of history that, that permeates San Francisco more than a lot of other great cities, certainly a lot more than a lot of other great cities in America. Well, it has an extraordinary uh, sort of, it, its history is almost like the punctuated equilibrium uh, theory of evolution. You have these enormous you know, events, uh, you know, followed by, uh, you know, long periods of silence. Uh, it, it was, it, it starts its history, of course, with the native, the native peoples who go back 12,000 years. That, that, you know, is not surprising. Most places have long indigenous histories. But then you have this extraordinary, very odd episode where it becomes this sort of flea-bitten outpost of Spain, the most dispersed, largest empire in world history, and this is literally the last outpost, and it was, you know, just kind of forgotten. The soldiers were barely paid. The same thing happened under Mexico. Very, very sleepy place. San Francisco is a town where you can almost, you know, you could hear a door slam across town until the gold rush. You could count the inhabitants. You could almost know everyone that lived in the town. Then comes this, you know, cataclysm of the uh, gold rush, which brings, you know, just the whole world. Someone wrote it as if the continent tilted westward and everyone flooded in, one of the great migrations in human history. So uh, from the beginning, the city has this, you know, extraordinary instant creation with uh, and just utter madness. Uh, people can literally not believe what they were watching. Then you have, you know, the Gilded Age, it just booms along, and then it's destroyed by the earthquake. So there's, uh, it's a very jagged and dramatic history, and I think that's one of the things that makes it stand out. It, you know, it doesn't have the kind of depth of history in, in American terms. Um, when, when uh, in 1776, when the United States was being founded, that was literally the same, almost the same month that the first Spanish explorer, Anza Camps, on Mountain Lake um, in the Richmond District of San Francisco. So the, the two tracks of the country are moving on different speeds, um, but San Francisco's history is just as fascinating, even if you don't have the, uh, you know, the revolutionary uh, people against the English. The other part of that is the degree to which people that live in San Francisco, certainly people that have lived there for any protracted period of time, embody that sense of history, care about that sense of history, more than in many other cities. No, there's tremendous pride and there's this tremendous interest in this city's uh, rich, uh, rich past and in, and in its present. And people, there's there's hyper local interest. People pay attention to their houses and their neighborhoods. There, there there's a strong, almost village-like sense in the neighborhoods of the city. Part of which is created by the terrain. 
Um, the, the one thing I think that does set San Francisco apart from just about every other major city in the world is the you know drama and the uh, jaggedness of its terrain and the fact that its terrain is so unconquerable. And that, uh, that leads people, I think, to have a lot of, of uh, local pride in their neighborhoods. And yeah, and just uh, there's a, I think there's a sense among especially older San Franciscans that they're part of a tradition of a city that has always been uh, untraditional, if you will, that's always been a maverick and a city that uh, dances to its own tune. And uh, people are proud of that, and they, they want to, uh, they don't want to let that go. What's also remarkable is the power that it has as a city, as a sense of place, given how relatively small it is compared to so many other large cities. Yes, that's that's really true. I mean, it doesn't have the media muscle or the financial muscle of, of New York or of Los Angeles or of Chicago. And I think it, it stands in the American imagination as a place at the end of the continent. It's tied in to the... Uh, the California dream, which tied into the the idea of of uh, limitless expansion of go west, young man, the manifest of destiny, and it's also seen as an escape. Um, Jack Kerouac wrote in On the Road, "It was the end of the continent. Nobody gave a damn anymore." And there's that that sense that San Francisco is a um, is a sort of a a land apart. And that has, and also its extraordinary physical beauty, which puts it in the league of cities like Rio de Janeiro and Sydney and Hong Kong and Istanbul. Uh, you know, these things linger in the imagination of people, the combination of its extraordinary beauty and the fact that it uh, really was a, you know, the last place in America for so many years has uh, given it a power. And the other thing that has given it enormous power is perhaps for the reasons that I mentioned above, it's always been a very creative place. It, it, it punches above its weight, if you will. Now, New York has uh, far more people, but where did the rock music revolution have its most brilliant place? It was in San Francisco. It was not in New York. Uh, there's been a great legacy of painters, poets, artists, and writers. Uh, a lot of creative things have come out of San Francisco. The dot-com revolution was in large part driven out of the Bay Area. So uh, there's a creativity among the population here that also uh, contributes to the uh, disproportionate uh, uh, influence and the dis- and the, uh, the sort of image of, that San Francisco has in the eyes of people around the world. And Gary, why do you think that is? What is it about San Francisco, some of these things that we've already been talking about, that gives it that creative power, as you say, above its weight class? Yeah, I mean, I think that some of it probably goes back to the early entrepreneurial spirit of the gold rush, which, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's hard to know. It's a little ahistorical to make claims like that because who knows how they get passed along. But there's always been an independent streak here. Um, it's kind of what they what used to say about the Japanese culture, that they were incredibly good at implementing designs, but their whole way of being brought up was so rote that they wouldn't pre- invent anything themselves. Well, San Francisco is just the opposite of that, if you will. There's always been that sense of, of possibility, of, uh, of optimism, that California optimism, that, that quality of I'll do it myself if no one else will do it. And uh, that I think that sort of uh, freedom and that independence has, has played some role in the fact that uh, it's been so creative. The other thing is it's such a desirable place to live, just in purely socioeconomic terms, 
this is one of the most beautiful and desirable places to live on planet Earth. You know, it's one of the few Mediterranean climates in the world. It's a very livable city if you have the money, which is an increasing problem. But what that means is it draws the best and brightest. So in, in the most, you know, if you're just looking at it from a completely cost-benefit analysis, people are drawn here because it's gorgeous and beautiful and smart, intelligent, talented, creative people are drawn here because they want to live here. And that creates a critical mass which then feeds on itself. So there's a lot of reasons why uh, there's a disproportionate amount of creativity here. How has San Francisco embodied and, and played out the California dream differently, say, than Southern California? I mean, the dream is the same, but it's played out in very different ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously San Francisco came first. San Francisco was a blooming metropolis when Los Angeles did not yet exist. So you have an earlier bohemian creation of a of its own sort of place. It, it has its own sense of identity when Los Angeles doesn't exist. Los Angeles then becomes, in some ways, a uh, you know it it it's it's boosters played up the myth of California that the San Francisco had already existed, and Los Angeles drew. Uh, many people from uh, the Midwest, from the heartland of America, for its climate, for the good life. These were not the things that initially drew people to San Francisco. People came here to get rich, to have adventures, uh, and you know it wasn't necessarily, oh, I'm going to go bask in the sunshine. And if they thought they were going to bask in the sunshine, they were obviously rudely surprised <laughs> when they got here at least much of the year. So I think that in many ways, what people think of as the you know, the California dream of, you know, having my pool in my backyard and my suburban life and, you know, working in the aerospace industry or something. Now, this is very much Southern California. And, and San Francisco embodies another perhaps deeper, more eccentric part of the, of the California uh, dream, which is, is more the, the idea of, of self-reinvention and of, of escape in some ways, and of, of an independence from uh, the, the strictures of New York and Boston and Washington. And so uh, they're both part of the California experience, but they are, but they're, uh, San Francisco is, is the more eccentric uh, one, and in some ways the deeper one, I would say. How much does the weather in San Francisco play a role in some of these things that we're talking about? I think it's I think it's really large. It's a little hard to quantify such things, but uh, I have a whole chapter in the book about the mm-hmm. weather. Uh, it's it's thinking weather. Um, it's weather that is uh, has infinite uh, variety within a very small spectrum because it's a Mediterranean climate. It uh, you know never rarely goes between forty five and seventy five degrees, and and it is. The city feels like it's borrowed from the sea. You feel often that you're basically on an island that just happens to, you know, there's some land connecting you to the mainland, but you might as well be on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean because the fog and the clouds and the weather that are all a, a function of the fact that the Golden Gate is here, the only break in the coast range for 600 miles, creates this extraordinarily changeable weather, one of the most changeable weathers of anywhere in the world. And this area, the area has more microclimates than almost anywhere in the world. So I think that living here, uh, it you know, keeps you on your toes. It makes you live in the present. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's actually it's delightful weather unless you are 
uh, you know, stuck in a endless fog monsoon in the western part of the city, in which case you may not find it quite <laughs> delightful. I've tended to live in the eastern part of the city, which has dramatically different weather than the west, and so it's a, it's a lot more, uh, a lot less uh, gray in the uh, in the eastern part of town, but but all of them are just subject to enormous change, and I think that leads to a creativity and keeps you on your toes and it keeps you moving around. Talk a little bit about how this has played out in the politics of San Francisco, particularly in a contemporary sense. Well, you know, the politics of San Francisco have gone, undergone you know enormous uh, changes. People forget that San Francisco until the 60s was institutionally a very conservative city. My colleague David Talbot, who founded Salon, right. with me, uh, wrote a really wonderful book called Season of the Witch, in which he delineates the, the fact that the hippie revolution, the gay rights revolution, environmentalism, women's rights, all the things that we associate with progressive San Francisco with, did not just appear magically out of this, you know, wonderful piece of log ethos surrounding San Francisco. This was a deeply conservative town dominated by an Irish Catholic uh, old boys network, and it was uh, they were not particularly welcoming of a lot of the things that happened in the 60s, and those things had to be fought for. So uh, in, in some ways, it's uh, the, the progressive politics are a function, uh, again, of the creativity and the young, uh, young people and young ideas and, and, you know, progressive ideas that have always, uh, you know, circulated through the city, certainly since the 60s. And, and, uh, and yes, I think that that's, it's become, uh, that's become sort of the institutionalized San Francisco approach to politics. And at a certain point, of course, then when you institutionalize something, it may, it may not perhaps be as, uh, as, uh, you know, unpredictable as it once was. But I, there's always, for many years, many decades, uh, San Francisco has been proudly associated to, with, uh, as, and as has always been proud to call itself, the most liberal city in the country. And I, I think even now, with uh, cities around the country in some ways coming to resemble each other more, I think it may still be safe to say that it is the most liberal city in the country. It's not only how it defines itself that way, it's also the way that it embraces the rest of the country or vast parts of the country perceiving it that way and wanting to define it that way. Yes, exactly. No, the, I, uh, people, people see, the, uh, see this uh, as, as an uh, absolutely progressive place. They're, they're happy if, um, you know, there's obviously dissenters about that. <laughs> the, uh, I think that uh, by by and large, the San Franciscans are proud of the sort of cultural uh, ethos they've created, and they're they're aware that the rest of the country uh, sees it that way. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about whether or not you think that the current changes in San Francisco, the fact that it is getting as expensive as it is, that it is changing in so many ways right now, will have an impact on some of this foundation that we've been talking about? Well, that's the $64 question, and uh, many, many things to say about that. Um, I, there, there, first of all, there's certainly reason to be concerned, um, to have, uh, and it, some of it is just a function of the incredible polarization of income in, in society at large, uh, but San Francisco is you know, in danger of becoming a rich, pers- a rich person city. It may, and if its current politics continue, it will become a city that is dominated by very rich people and very poor people. 
who also have powerful, powerful defenders in San Francisco. And that's, uh, you know, that's undesirable. You want to have the teachers, the pops, the firemen, the, uh, you know, the, the barbers, um, the taxi drivers. You want to have people that provide the sinew of a city being able to live in the city and not just having to live in the absolute farthest flung corners of the city or out of the city altogether. And uh, that's that's a major problem that San Francisco faces. So, but on the other hand, um, you know, I, I think that historians of cities have to guard against nostalgia. <laughs> um, you cities change, and and the current influx of money and, and tech, techies and and various other uh, uh, people with a, a lot of money who are pouring into San Francisco. It's really too soon to say uh, how this is going to play out over the long run. Uh, there, you know, you hear a lot of complaints, people talking all these clueless young kids but they're waving their millions of dollars around and driving the rents up. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure there's truth in that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, young people with money can become uh, or may be creative, good San Francisco citizens, too, and who are going to bring their own uh, contribution to the melting pot of, of this city. So uh, I think that, you know, we've people that love San Francisco, you want to keep it alive and vibrant and prosperous and not, not and, and try to allow the middle class as much as possible to stay here. But you can't treat it like it's a gated community and pull up the, the drawbridge and say, everything must be the way it was in, you know, 1979 <laughs> or whatever, because it's not going to work. And you need churn and cities are living organisms. So, uh, so there's there's reason to be concerned, um, but there's also reason to be hopeful. Taking the long historical view, it actually gives you a little more of a sense of we've been through this before. People have been worrying about San Francisco losing its soul almost since the gold rush. So uh, it's uh, it's not the first time this, this debate has happened. It's also interesting in that, un- not unlike Manhattan in that respect, it is a city that can't grow any larger. It is very much defined by its borders, unlike Los Angeles, for example. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's hemmed in. You know, it's 46 square miles, and, uh, you know, there are, there's some quite a bit of land that can be developed in the southeastern part of the city in, in Hunter's Point and Bayview, but uh, that's really one of the only uh, areas that, that has any significant open space. So, yeah, you're talking about every move that happens here is consequential, and because everybody cares about their physical environment and everybody cares about the politics of housing and of development very, very intensely here, um, as anyone who's ever tried to do any, you know, building development, even adding anything onto your house, uh, San Francisco is a, uh, is a very tough town, um, and which is mostly good because, you know, you, you, promiscuous development, which took place a lot in the 50s and 60s of San Francisco, much of it was very destructive. So the fact that we have strict planning guidelines and that, you know, you have, you, you've got to go through a process is mostly a good thing. I'm sure it can be frustrating for those that are you know, trying to do certain kinds of developments. But yeah, it, it's very, uh, it, it, it's an intense, it's kind of like a antimatter. It's, uh, there's just nowhere for it to expand. So and there's height limits as well, so you can't even keep building up. So there's a yeah, there's there's a, a certain amount of institutional just frozenness about the place that it, it's probably never going to dramatically change from what it is now in terms of its infrastructure because it would never be allowed and there's no nowhere for it to go. 
And one of the things that goes hand in hand with that, and it's one of the criticisms sometimes of, of San Francisco and those that populate it, is a sense of being overly precious about that mm-hmm. which exists already and not wanting to right. change. Yeah, no, I mean, that's really true. I grew up in Berkeley, which is also a major homeland of uh, nimbyism and, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, people just wanting to keep things exactly as they are. No, absolutely, There's a, there can be a smugness, there can be a preciousness, there can be a... Uh, you know, uh, a sense of this is uh, absolutely perfect as it is now, and we can never have any change, and we certainly can't have any change that might affect my little piece of paradise. And, uh, you know, that, that can be uh, unsavory, and, and it can be uh, uh, a tiresome uh, attitude. I, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, as universal or as all-embracing as some people say it is about San Francisco, and there's a good side to it, too, which is, you know, you care about your city. You love your city. You pay attention to it. You're not just like saying, "Oh, you know, if, if, if those uh, developers want to come in and put in a you know a shopping mall here, let them. It'll be more money into the coffers." Uh, we don't need that attitude either. So uh, yeah, so there can be preciousness, but there can also be civic pride and uh, and um, you know a desire to make this as livable and as beautiful and as functional a city as it can be. And there's a, there's a lot of smart people thinking about that here. As you talk about within that context is this sense of neighborhood. And, and you spend a lot of time in Cool Gray City of Love talking about and looking at the various neighborhoods that make up the city. Yeah, I mean, they're just, there's wonderful uh, diversity of neighborhoods, which, as I uh, said before, may go back ultimately to the terrain. Um, I think if you, we were to have, uh, if you could institute a Siena-style polio, this medieval horse race they have in Siena, where all the neighborhoods in the city uh, have this, you know, get on horses in medieval costumes and race around the square. I think that would be a very popular event in San Francisco. <laughs> you know, the neighborhoods like West Portal, um, North Beach, you know, Telegraph Hill, Bernal Heights, Petrero Hill, the Ingleside, the Sunset, the Richmond, you know, I could go on and on, the Hates, the Mission, yeah, they all have their unique quality, their their flavor, their demographic mix. It's kind of like the uh, lots of different wines, different interesting wines, and and there's a a great uh, that creates a great attachment, hyper local attachment. I mean, there's there are so many hyper local blogs. You know, they're practically blogs that cover you know ten square blocks of the city, and uh, and that reflects you know people's uh, attachment to their turf and in you know, in a sort of wonderful way, this actually harkens all the way back to the uh, the uh, Indian inhabitants of San Francisco, the Yalamu. Uh, California Indians were also hyper-local. Most of them never went more than you know, 10 miles from where they were born. And uh, there's a certain delightful quality in which uh, San Francisco's uh, uh, neighborhoods and, and the fact that you can, you know, often, you know, do as much of your business in your neighborhood uh, harken back to something that goes back many thousands of years. It is interesting, the contrast of this hyper-localism of neighborhoods in San Francisco coupled with the the tech world and the globalism that is so much a part of that and the global outlook that the city has in many respects. No, it's true. I mean, there's uh, many odd, interesting paradoxes about San Francisco, which is that a lot of the people pouring into it now are working in companies like Twitter or Google 
and social media companies that specialize in creating disembodied communities. They're, they're called communities, but I would question whether they actually are communities, except in the most general linguistic sense. Um, they're disembodied. They're not, you don't actually see human beings. So you have this odd spectacle of seeing people in this most magnificent physical setting in the world uh, wandering around staring at their cell phones and, uh, you know, and, and living in this alternate reality, which is, of course, you know, the one that we now run our society by. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a completely opposite one to the experience uh, which is the one that drove me in the book, which is physically walking through the city and trying to cover as many uh, square feet of it and uh, as possible and on foot and on bicycle and, and on car, by car. And the, um, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the disembodied, abstract quality that drives a lot of tech culture is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that a lot of these folks, when they sort of uh, that San Francisco will be a good antidote to what can be a uh, stultifying immersion in uh, pixelated screens. Gary Camilla, the book is Cool Gray City of Love, 49 Views of San Francisco. Gary, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 